0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17 and uh, oh, down to verse 15, 16 we were uh, last week we i think we got some good ground last week we covered uh, verses 14 and 15 talking about the perversion of justice the inversion of justice and the abomination that the lord finds that to be <clears throat> when you call good evil and evil good then uh it is an abomination to the lord and uh, i think abomination is a word we need to use more often <laughs> because it's uh it's effective it communicates and uh, and it really i think in a very plain fashion, describes what the Lord is is talking about here. All right. So this morning we'll move on to verse 16 and 17 and uh, see what the Lord has for us there. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask our Father for His faithfulness in our study of His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious, heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning once again, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your truth, and Father, uh, calling upon your faithfulness once again to open the eyes of our understanding, to give us the ears to hear. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, so let's deal with the price in the hand of a fool, in verse 16, why is there a price in the hand of a fool to buy wisdom when he has no sense? And, uh, you know, when a fool recognizes he needs wisdom, that's one thing. But when he has no sense, why does he even want wisdom? And there's a a question there. So let's get ahead here. If I got my slideshow going. Nope. Covered those already, covered that already. There. All right. The Word of God is not for sale. The Word of God is not for sale. When you bring money in your hand as if you can purchase it, what are you really trying to do? The Word of God is not for sale. Even when we acquire and buy, the cost is is not price in hand, all right? There's a price to be paid, but it's not what we bring. It's not the, the price in hand as this verse describes it. Why is there a price in the hand of a fool to buy wisdom? When you walk in and the price is in your hand and you think, that that's sufficient, <laughs> you've, you've, already, you've already lost. You've already blown it in the, in the plan of God. The price in hand, that's not, uh, that's not the cost. The true cost is what Jesus Christ purchased on our behalf. The true cost is infinitely more than we can even imagine. Because His ways are not our ways, neither are His thoughts our thoughts. The wisdom that comes from God, you can't put a price tag on it. And we want to be very clear on this. So... Uh, why is there a price in the hand of a fool to buy wisdom? How, how do you buy something like that? When he has no heart. The term heart here is what's translated as sense. He has no heart for the wisdom. He doesn't want it for its own sake. He doesn't have a heart for it because he loves it, because he loves the Lord, because uh, for, for all the right reasons, the reasons why you and I would want to have the wisdom of God. He doesn't have a heart for God's wisdom, but he has a carnal desire to obtain something that he thinks will be of some kind of a benefit will be uh, because somebody else has something maybe that he doesn't have or for whatever other reason. All, all the false motivations that there are to try to acquire wisdom. And uh, we see it here. No, uh, not only in verse 16 of this chapter but also in chapter 23, Proverbs 23, 23. It says, buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. So now we have two Proverbs that on the surface might appear to contradict. In Proverbs 17, it says it's not for sale. You know, don't bring a price in your hand to try to buy it. But in Proverbs 23, it says, buy it. It says, buy wisdom. So how do we resolve the conundrum? How do we solve what might otherwise be contradictory? That's not contradictory. All right, buy truth and do not sell it. So if you're going to be a buyer or a seller okay, you, you you want to be a buyer. We always want to be a buyer. We want to acquire wisdom. We want to acquire understanding. And we're not selling it. We're not going to make money off of it. If, uh, uh, the idea of selling anything means that you're gonna make a profit on it, that, uh, that, uh, you know, you might acquire it and then you're gonna, you're gonna profit from it. No, not at all. Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. We constantly want to be taking in the Word of God and it's not for sale. It's not for sale. And even when we do acquire or buy or purchase or obtain. Remember, some of these terms are, are not the best of, of renderings because uh we're we're talking about the, the Kana vocabulary from uh from even back to Proverbs eight, even back to the other applications where we've had Kana. It means acquire, get it. Okay. And you might purchase it. You might steal it. You might birth it. You might, there's other ways to get things. You might build it. You might create it. Kana does not describe how. Kana just simply emphasizes the getting. All right. So, do you get what I'm saying? Do you get it? It means you get it. It means that you didn't have it, but now you have it. And so, that's, that's, that's all the Kana means. And so, I think sometimes, um, Sometimes uh, we, do ourselves, uh, we don't do ourselves favor if we put it in a buy-sell context and it shouldn't be there. Here I don't have any problem with it, I think it's fine to leave it in a buy-sell context because it does say buy and do not sell. The only issue is we then have to resolve the, the uh, apparent contradiction with chapter 17 where it says don't buy it. Why is there a price in the hand of a fool to buy wisdom when he has no sense? All right. Even when we acquire wisdom, even when we come, like you're here this morning to acquire wisdom, you're here this morning and you're purchasing wisdom this morning. It's just the price you're paying has already been paid by somebody else, that the, the cost of this wisdom has been made for you. How about Proverbs 4.7 to spell this out? Proverbs 4.7. The beginning of wisdom is Kana wisdom. Acquire wisdom. Get wisdom. It doesn't say buy it, it just says acquire it. But it's the same verb that we have in chapter 17 this morning. It's the same verb that we have in chapter twenty-three. It's the same kana. It's the same Kana we studied when Yahweh kanad God the Son, when God the Father begat the humanity of Jesus Christ. It's the same kana that we looked at in Proverbs chapter 8. You guys might get uh, (coughs) tired of hearing this verb after a while. So the beginning of wisdom is, get wisdom. And with your getting, get understanding. Get understanding. And so we dealt with that in chapter four and talked about the blessings of not only acquiring the information, but also the, the, uh, the understanding, the full understanding of it so that we can make the multiplied, uh, applications in different, different areas there. Proverbs 18 and verse 15. The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. And so there's acquiring and there's seeking. And that parallelism is marvelous because that then shows us a bit of the how-to. Well, how do I acquire it? How do I buy it? How do I get it? How is it that I acquire this wisdom and this understanding? Well, it comes in the parallel here with seeking. The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So seeking and you shall find. Knock and it shall be open. Ask and it shall be given. We have the privilege. It's it's there for the asking. And uh, if you ask for a fish, he's not going to give you a snake. If you ask for a loaf, he's not going to give you a rock. I mean, the the benefits of of, uh, acquiring wisdom is that it's available for anyone with a heart of wisdom, with a heart to receive it. If you want to know the truth, you will know the truth, as Jesus promised. Is it from, do I speak from the Father or do I speak for myself? If you, if you have a heart for wisdom, if you seek it, He's going to provide. Of course He's going to provide. He, He, how, how would He not provide? What kind of a faithless Father would not provide wisdom when He's promised that He would do so? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously or liberally and without reproach. There's never any kind of uh, of criticism of, well, what took you so long? There's never any kind of reproach that says, finally, you know, you're coming to me for wisdom now. You've been ignoring me all this time. Why are you coming to me now? See, those are are carnal human attitudes and God doesn't have that. (laughs) When we go to him for wisdom, he's going to provide without reproach and he's going to provide abundantly. That's uh, that's his faithful promise, and we've been seeing this again and again and again. So really, the uh, when we acquire it, when we buy it, the cost is not price in hand. It's not what we can bring. It's not what we can offer. It's not what we uh, what we bring to the to the transaction. See, God's not going to be impressed with anything we can bring to the transaction. We're simply going and asking, and He does provide. And so it comes to that. One of my favorite texts for this is Isaiah 55, salvation and the riches of his grace are purchased without money and without cost because the price has already been paid by Jesus Christ. And this is true for not only the grace that saves us, but this is true for the grace that teaches us. This is true for the very wisdom of God that's available for any believer who wants to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So salvation and the riches of his grace, they are purchased without money and without cost because the price has already been paid by Jesus Christ. And um, Isaiah 55, one of my favorite Old Testament uh, soteriological invitations, When Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, that should not have been a newsflash to a teacher of Israel. He should have had every perspective based on Old Testament revelation as far as the necessity for regeneration, the necessity for uh, reconciliation and redemption and all the soteriological doctrines that we teach from a New Testament perspective in Christ. They should have had a full understanding of all of those doctrines in an Old Testament context. And uh, Isaiah 55 is, is one of the very clear gospel presentations that we have there. Ho. <laughs> Don't you love a text that starts with ho? Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And so it starts with an attention getter. It offers a universal invitation. Everyone who thirsts, well, who doesn't? We're, we all are sinners in Adam. We all have a need. Everyone who thirsts, come to the to the waters. And so there is provision for your need and your expectation is to come. And it says, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Well, how do you buy if you don't have any money? Well, you can buy if somebody else is paying the price. You can buy, but you still have to come. You still have to make the transaction. Yes, Jesus Christ paid the price. But you have to come and make the purchase. You who have no money, come buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? The problem is in the human realm as we get misoriented and we, we we confuse spiritual realities with physical realities. We confuse Uh, spiritual food with earthly food. And we realize that to purchase eternal life, to purchase spiritual food, to purchase God's wisdom, to purchase anything in the spiritual dimension is not going to come with what we can earn or deserve or what we can produce or anything in the earthly realm. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. And so it starts with Hearing the word of God. Listen to me. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You've got to listen to what God is saying. Listen to what God is offering. Listen to what God is promising. And then come on the terms that he establishes. And so when it says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good, delight yourself in abundance, you realize every provision has been made. And we can just feast on what he supplies. Incline your ear and come to me listen that you may live. So incline your ear. And I think this is a useful expression that refers to um, readiness to hear the gospel, that refers to positive volition at the point of God consciousness, that refers to some of the common grace that goes into preparing the unbeliever, that uh, there has to be some readiness of soul, readiness of of the drawing that uh, the Bible describes, where the Father draws, where the Holy Spirit convicts where there's an attitudinal adjustment that God's grace is already preparing that person to, uh, to incline their ear. It's only by the grace of God. If In fact, if, if the Father doesn't draw, nobody's going to come to Christ. If that common grace is not made, then you know our foolish heart is darkened and we're not going to go looking for, for eternal life. But we see it here. The common grace of God that's, that's working in the heart of the one that he's calling to. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. All right, then it goes on and starts to get into issues for Israel and their covenant and the position there. We won't go into that this morning. All right, how about 1 Peter 1? 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. The price has been paid. And what a precious price it is. If you think about it, anything we can bring, that's human. Anything we can bring or contribute ourselves, somebody else can bring more. (laughs) You know, if it's about human effort or human merit or what it is we bring to the transaction, that's on a relative scale of humanity. Uh, We might be impressed with what we're bringing, but somebody else can bring more. And, uh, and why would God be impressed with what I can offer when somebody else can offer more? And why would He be impressed with what they can offer when somebody else can offer even more than that? And why would God be impressed with anything finite that a human could bring? Consider what the price was for our redemption. The infinitely valuable blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what 1 Peter 1 talks about. Verse uh, 17 says, If you address his Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. This is an exhortation to godliness, to the fear of the Lord. This is similar to um, where we are right now in Hebrews 10, an admonishment uh, that it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, that uh, we should have that fear of the Lord based upon what he spent to purchase us it's not this is not earning our salvation deserving our salvation paying him back for our salvation but this is just recognizing the price he paid was infinite and we uh, ought to appreciate that respond to that we ought to conduct ourselves in a measure of of uh, that's that's worthy of the calling with which we've been called so Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. The fact that he saved you means you're here on a pilgrimage and you're going to be face to face before you know it. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. All right? We, don't, we call silver and gold precious metals. The Bible calls them perishable. And I love that. The things that we value, that we think are durable, that we think are lasting. God just says, that's all perishable. Even, uh, I mean, it's all perishable because the whole universe is perishable. It's all, the very elements themselves are going to be consumed with great heat. And I love the fact that silver and gold are called perishable things. And something so cheap as gold can't, uh, you know, we have these idioms like, oh, it's worth its weight in gold, right? (laughs) And I'm getting more, uh, more wealthy all the time, it seems. All right. But seriously, what's 200 pounds of gold worth? Who cares? On an eternal scale, it's all getting burned up. All right? You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. That's not what He redeemed you with. But with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The purchase price for your redemption was infinite. The infinitely valued, the one of a kind, the monogonese, there's only one. And the the one of a kind purchase price, how do you put a price on that? How do you measure the uniquely born Son of God? That's what He spent. That's what the Father spent. That's what the Son was willing to be spent on our behalf. And so it's an infinite prize. Okay, for He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but He has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. And this is all in the, the eternal plan of God, is what He knew before He even decreed the volitional beings, He knew that the need for redemption was going to happen. And that fallen angels and fallen men and the, the 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 plan of God to create a volitional realm of existence was going to invariably result in negative volition being exercised and the necessity to reconcile the lost estate back to God. And that the purchase price was going to be God Himself. And He was willing to do that. He who was known, foreknown before the foundation of the world. And so all of these things become huge. Now this applies to salvation, this applies to all of the riches of His grace. They are provided to us abundantly. And, and he's paid the price. He's paid the price. It's already been paid. So the idea then that we can come along and cheapen what God has done, the idea that we can come along and put a price tag on what the Father has already decreed to be the infinite value of His Son is, uh, is insulting. It's blasphemous. It's everything that Hebrews 10 talks about. It's trampling underfoot the Son of God. It's regarding as unclean, the blood of the covenant by which we are sanctified. It's insulting the spirit of grace. And we have a marvelous illustration for this in the person of Simon. Acts chapter 8 tells us the story of Simon with a guy who thinks he can buy uh, superpowers. He can buy the apostolic prerogatives and privileges. Acts chapter 8. And Simon gives his name to the uh, sin of simony, the terrible scourge throughout church history that's infested uh, denominations and segments of Christendom for uh, centuries. Acts chapter 8 verses 18 through 24. And when Peter rebukes him it's, uh, it's rightly so. It's, it's uh, right on target related to this. The idea that you can purchase this. Acts chapter 8 verses 18 through 24. And yet it seems like that's what Proverbs 17 is dealing with when the guy doesn't have a heart of wisdom at all but he brings a price in hand to acquire wisdom. What does he want that for? What does he want that for? Why does Satan have so many agents in the ministry when they clearly don't have a heart for the Word of God? (laughs) Why uh, Why is it? Why is it that uh, there's so many, um, uh, I mean it just seems like uh, if you hear a news story about an Episcopal priest, um, I, I lay good odds. I bet 20 bucks it's a lesbian. Alright, you know? Why, why, why would I be safe making that bet? Say, oh it's a female pastor? Oh, I nailed that. I was waiting for that news story. Okay, Or some of these other denominations. And why is it that they are infesting the seminaries? Why is it that they're. What's the drive to go into into the ministry? Because there's not a heart for wisdom. Okay? There's satanic motivations for these things. All right, Acts chapter 8. And. uh, Anyway, the ministry that Philip has here and these other things um, starting I guess in verse 4 verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them and crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed so there was much rejoicing in that city. Now that's pretty spectacular, that's pretty awesome. I mean who wouldn't want to be a part of something like that? Great revivals going on and some amazing things are happening there. There was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria claiming to be someone great. And uh, so you can imagine, that's his reputation and that's what he's accustomed to. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. So he's got a pretty plum gig going there and and, and a reputation and a name I imagine is very lucrative. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike and even Simon himself believed. Now I accept that at face value. The Scripture says that. Uh, some people say, well, it was just a professing faith, it wasn't real, blah, blah, blah. That's, uh, that's injecting their flawed theology on the text. The text says that Simon himself pistuode. And my Bible says that means he has eternal life. All right, Whosoever believes has eternal life. Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now this is what brings about the problem, is because, see, he gets saved, but then he injects into his early Christian walk now, he starts to inject attitudes and mindsets and things that he had before he got saved. All right, and uh, this gets reflected here very quickly. So, uh, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them, that they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. All right, so now it's in that context that Philip, that. uh, Simon tries to purchase this, uh, this power. So when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, <laughs> why? We don't know. I mean, I think it's clear. The rebuke that Peter gives is, is clear. And it's uh, it's under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that it's recorded here and it's given here um, that his, his attitude was wrong. That, uh, that he wanted to have this power for not uh, biblical reasons. But he wants it. It's like why does the fool in Proverbs 17, why does he want wisdom? Why does he have a price in hand to acquire wisdom when he doesn't have a heart for wisdom? What does he intend to do with that? What does he intend to what, what purpose does that serve? Nothing good, I'll tell you that. So Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And this applies broadly and generally in every aspect of our Christian walk. Every aspect. We don't give under principles of grace giving because we're hoping to obtain something. We're giving because we are reflecting the love that we have for God and for His word. There is no grace giving that, uh, that we think is going to earn us something or, or merit something or acquire something. Our giving is a love expression, nothing more. All right? And uh, here's uh, the rebuke that comes in verse 20. Verse 21 says, You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Again, I, I take that at face value. Peter is speaking here in the under the uh, leading of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. He's going to have to get retrained. He's going to have to have his attitude completely adjusted. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. And uh, and you know his confession here, I think, admits to that. That says everything Peter has nailed him on is absolutely accurate. So Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That he's, he's acknowledging that everything Peter said was correct, that his heart is not right, that he is in the gall of bitterness, that he is in the bondage of iniquity. And that um, I think like many of the uh, Israelites that came through the Red Sea, they started to regret leaving Egypt. They started to think that they had it better back in their bondage. And that here's a man that got saved. I don't doubt that he's saved because the Scripture says he believed. But uh, he's saved and then he starts to realize <laughs> what, what, what this means. This means that his old manner of life is, is over. That means that his old prestige is gone. That means that, that uh, the accolades and the, and the wealth and all of that, he's going to have to, he's got to find a new gig. And uh, he's got a bitterness about that. See, and it's hard for us, maybe, I don't know, it's hard for us to think, well, who, who would regret getting saved? I've known a few people over the years, and here's why. Because in the, in the youthfulness of their early salvation, without being taught, without the Word of God, without growing, they, uh, they start to see some things and they start to, without you know, a new way of thinking, that old way of thinking starts to uh, convince them that they made a horrible mistake. See, I worked with a guy that said I can't get saved. He said, uh, you know, if I believe your Bible, uh, then uh, your Bible dis- disapproves of my lifestyle. He said, I'll, I'll have to break up with my girlfriend, or or I'd pro- maybe I'd have to marry her, that'd be even worse. You know, he just, uh, I'm, I'm not joking, this is what he told me. This is what he told me. He said, your Bible does not approve of, of me shacking up with my girlfriend. I said, well, this is boggling my mind here because you're going to die and go to hell. You don't have eternal life. Uh, don't you think that's a bigger issue? You know, we don't you think we got to get you saved and get your girlfriend saved and <laughs> whatever else. And um so for Simon to have these regrets, I think it's understandable. Just like uh for the uh Israelites to want to go back to Egypt and hey, let's be slaves again. Um our carnality gets comfortable with itself. And so uh, a baby believer until they get some doctrine in them until they start getting some some. Uh, what was that? The old um, I think Colonel Thiem called it the post-salvation epistemological rehabilitation. Right. <laughs> it, it means that our way of thinking has got to get re- rehabilitated, and it, it has to happen after we're saved because it can't happen until we're saved. And this is what uh, this is what Simon's dealing with here. So. This is the great illustration for what we're talking about. It's not for sale. The Word of God is not for sale. Spiritual gifts are not for sale. Um, ministries are not for sale as far as, uh, as far as that goes in terms of who, uh, who is the Lord calling to, uh, to, uh, to be a, a pastor, who is the Lord calling to be a deacon, who is the Lord calling to be a Sunday school teacher, or any of the rest. The, the financial issues aren't even issues for, for anything in the, in the ministry of the Word of God. See? And uh, for the business, for the churches out there that run themselves like businesses, that run themselves with a corporate model, that, that take the, the richest men in the church or the best businessmen in the church and they say well you, you should be a deacon because you've had business success or whatever. That's garbage. Absolute garbage. See? I've had deacons before that have been homeless. I don't care. If, they, if they're called to serve uh, the flock, then there you go. That's what you're called to do. It's not for sale. The Apostle Paul clearly portrayed the greatness of grace ministry. The Apostle Paul clearly portrayed the greatness of grace ministry. And and really the Apostle of grace takes all of these things from, from Proverbs and everywhere else and just spells it out in such a clear fashion. The Apostle Paul clearly portrayed the greatness of grace ministry you know seriously i mean a, a religious system that could be purchased who would want something like that you know how insulting how uh, how cheap second corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17 you know and yet you go you go to europe and you see these great cathedrals and you see all these marvelous testaments to uh, what a whole lot of money can buy over centuries. And while the architecture has a there's an architectural beauty to these glorious edifices, there's a theological ugliness that just breaks your heart. Because you know, I mean, how many indulgences were sold because someone was, you know, guilt-ridden over their dear aunt Sadie in purgatory or whatever and just Horrified, trying to, to handle money hand over fist to this, this corrupt religious structure to, uh, to fill the coffers of the Vatican. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2.17 We are not like many peddling the word of God but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. We are not like many peddling the word of God. We're not here to sell it. We're not here to peddle it. We're not here to adulterate it. It's not, it's not marketed. Peddling the word of God. I like the fact that peddling is uh, the, the Greek word there also speaks to adulterating. Adulterating put a price on it, you're just adulterating the Word. But as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. If you are a grace minister of the Word of God you're, you're going to minister whether they're paying you or not. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a freely you've received, freely you've given uh, attitude and there you have it. Chapter 9 verses 5-15 2 Corinthians 9, 5-15 through 15. And really, we could say one through fifteen, but um in verses one through four, he's talking about his travel plans and why it is that he sent the team ahead of him so that they can they can get the money stuff dealt with and out of the way before Paul even walks in the door. And that's the best way to handle things. So um in verse three he says, I've sent the brethren in order that are boasting about you may not be made empty. In this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. And uh that this gift can be taken care of ahead of time. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, would be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead of you, ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. And you see the benefit to this. You, you, you take care of it ahead of time. You remove the emotions. You remove the covetousness. You remove any other middle attitude issue that might affect the legitimacy of the grace giving. You certainly uh, don't want the pressure of having the Apostle Paul walking in. You want to have all that done ahead of time. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And this is uh, dealing with the, the bountiful gift. It's not a tithe, it's not a minimum, it's not a have-to, it's a want-to. There's no maximum, it's whatever you're led to do is unto the Lord. Make it as bountiful as you want to make it. How, what's your capacity and how much do you love the Lord? It just comes down to that. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And this is the grace principle. The grace principle says we are objects of God's grace. We are objects of God's mercy. God has done so much for us. We want to reflect that. We want to communicate our love response. And so it just comes down to what is my capacity to reflect the love that I have for God? And if, uh, if my capacity is, is, uh, is a sparing Uh, meager, uh, uh, reap sparingly, well then I'm going to sow sparingly. That's what it's going to be. But I pray that the day comes that He increases my capacity. My capacity to sow bountifully where I love Him so much and that I, I just give and give and give. God loves the cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. You know how many absolutes are in that one verse right there? All grace, always, all sufficiency, in everything, every good deed. There's five statements of of, uh, totality in that one verse. As it is written, "...he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply..." your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Do you want more seed? See, if you're a miser, what are you trying to do? Sow. He's given it to you to sow. He supplies seed to the sower. What else are you going to do with it? Sow it. And bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in everything for all liberality which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. If you're sowing sparingly, you're reaping sparingly and you're diminishing the thanksgiving to God. What are you doing that for? For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, that's almost a side effect. Yeah, okay. There's grace giving and there's a fund that's going to be a famine relief fund that's going to Jerusalem. Got that. Not only is it doing that, look what else it's doing. It's overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. What a blessing. The, the, the whole principle of grace giving takes you down to the end of the chapter there. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. The joys of believers to come together in a, in a corporate way, in a collective way, in a, in a marvelous way. We get to give a chorus of, of amens. We get to give a chorus of thanksgivings. Anyway, it's a marvelous, uh, a marvelous truth. 1 Timothy chapter 6 Verses 9 and 10. And really there's a larger context here as well. And uh, some of these men maybe with Simon attitudes or Proverbs 17 attitudes. Constant, uh, you know, you wonder about this. Verse 3 says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine or does not agree with sound words, those who our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness he is conceited and understands nothing. This is like the fool with a price in hand. He doesn't have a heart for wisdom but what does he have? A morbid interest in controversial questions. And some people just like being Bible experts so they can debate and they can argue and they can play devil's advocate and they can tweak other people and they can You know, they they have a a gnosis of Bible knowledge. They don't have an epinosis or or an oida or sophia or anything. A morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. I love that. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Well, there you go. There's the Simon attitude, let's make a buck off of this. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And there is the real principle. This is what Paul talks about with uh, uh, I know the secret, to get along in humble means, to get along in, in uh, with abundance. For we have brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. You know what? I didn't starve yesterday. I woke up this morning with a roof over my head. There you go. Thank you, Father, for your grace provision. But those who want to get rich, and that's curious to me. Not wrong to be rich. You're not a sinner if you are. But if you're not, and you disagree with the wisdom of God because you want something God has not provided yet, why is God not putting you in that, in that economic status? Or why does God put you in that economic status? And if you want something that He His wisdom is not putting you in, then uh, that becomes the problem right there. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge man into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Some for long, by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So I think believers with a gift of giving, they want to serve the Lord, they want to give to God, they want to bear fruit, they want to serve and they recognize that the means He's provided to do so is His grace provision in their life. And they don't, they're not wanting it for its own sake. I think that's the, the attitudinal difference that's being expressed here. Alright, finally Titus one eleven. Titus. And these are the ones to uh, be warned about. The, um, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Probably the same crowd that Proverbs 17 is talking about. They don't have a heart for wisdom, but they come with a price in hand. And it says, uh, "...who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain." So coming with a price in hand, without a heart of wisdom... The idea is they're trying to acquire something that they think they can, they can flip it. It's like flipping a house. They can flip, they can acquire some wisdom, they can get a little bit of knowledge. As long as they know more than the next guy, then they can victimize him with what they know and make some money off of it. And uh, it's sad. One of themselves, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars. Well, probably. Alright. So we have it there. Um... Back to Proverbs 17. Why is there a price in the hand of a fool? Well, can't always answer the why questions, but you have to ask it. You have to wonder. Here's somebody, he's a fool. He does not have a heart of wisdom, but he wants it. He wants something. And he's got a price in hand that uh, he thinks will, uh, will get him what he wants. And uh, our admonishment is beware. All right, we get to verse 17. We have friends and brothers. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. All right, so here um, we're going to pick up on this in two weeks. Let's see. Let me just tease you with some of this, give you some things to think about. Um, Because we have friends and brothers. I don't think I even got the slide ready. No, I don't have a slide this morning. But we have the language of friends that we've already seen. We've seen it again and again earlier in Proverbs, but it was not translated friends. It was translated neighbor. All right? We have the same Hebrew word. The word is right. And the right is your neighbor, or it's also your friend. And uh, why does the Hebrew have the same word for friend that it has for neighbor? We don't like that. It's not our usage. It's not our custom. We have, uh, we, I do have neighbors. I'm not friends with any of them. And, uh, and I have friends and none of them are neighbors. They, they're scattered all over the place. All right. We tend to have uh, kind of a, a differentiation in our, in our usage, our English language usage of the word friend and the word neighbor. We don't equate them. We don't call them, we, don't, we wouldn't think of them synonymously. But the Hebrew language does. And the Old Testament does. And the, uh, the command to love your neighbor is uh, I think significant when uh, some people try to limit uh, what they do in loving their neighbor to the ones they like or their friends. And, but it's the same word. The same word for neighbor is the same word for friend. And uh, we'll even, uh, I might even pull up the uh, We'll do this in a couple of weeks. I'll, I'll pull up the vocabulary for you too, because it's curious to me that the same uh, the same Hebrew radicals, the same re or re, ah, that not only addresses friends and neighbors, also speaks to shepherds, speaks to shepherding. And there's uh, there's a uh, there's a uh, I think uh, an etymology as it refers to shepherding and the intimacy between a shepherd and his flock, the friendship, the the neighborliness, the the, uh, the whole expectation of loving your neighbor as it applies to the shepherding duties of, uh, of a pastor with his flock. So we'll deal with some of that. But a friend loves it to all times and a brother is born for adversity. We're going to see additional proverbs that speak of brothers and, and uh, neighbors uh, and, friend, and a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Remember that one? Because there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And you start to realize why did God design families on this basis? Why did God design friendship on this basis? And how is it that the earthly illustration, what does it communicate as it relates to our uh, spiritual relationship with God? Why is it that we have, that we're sons of God, we're family, but then that high praise when Abraham was called a friend of God. What happens, uh, what is the, the, uh, the expectation there? when uh, that friendship becomes an application for us. So we'll deal with that uh, as far as that goes. All right, I just hate to get into it and I didn't think we'd get that far so I didn't even put slide 17 uh, on the laptop as far as that goes. Let's close with prayer and uh, thank the Father for His faithfulness. Father I thank You for truth, I thank You for the blessings that we have to study to show ourselves approved. Father we um, Rejoice in uh, the blessings of grace, the recognition that it's not for sale. The recognition that uh, that if uh, if we if we have less money, that doesn't mean we have less access to the throne of grace, or that if we have more money, then we can purchase uh, additional privileges in in our Christian walk. All of that's garbage, Father. And I pray that uh, as we study to show ourselves, approve that as we stay in a grace ministry, serving one another in the body of Christ. I thank You that Your Word is so clear from the Old Testament to the New Testament that we have uh, that, that we have what we have because You're a God of grace. What do we have that we did not receive? And if we received it, why do we boast as if we had not received it? All that we are is by Your grace and all that we do is by Your grace. And I thank You for these these precious truths. If we start to lose sight of them, if we start to drift if we ever have a, a tendency to, uh, to uh, plunge into realms of legalism, uh, slap us in, in your divine discipline, Father, and open our eyes to uh, the, the seriousness of it. May we always be testimonies to your grace. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.